Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands. To action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. The sermon this morning is entitled, Are You Sowing and Reaping Christ? We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 4, as I have already made reference, and we'll see sowing and reaping there in a very opposite way. And so the question would be for us, naturally, to ask the question, what hope do we have that we might be different than Ba'anah and Rechah, what we're going to see here in just a few minutes, who end very tragically. And they believe that what they're doing, which is murder, they're doing in the name of the Lord, and they say so to King David, and invoke the name of the Almighty in defense of their murder. It's an example, a great example, of self-deception. Self-deception occurs in every one of us all the time. We have a great propensity in that direction. It is Lucretius who writes on the nature of things about 2,000 years ago, who says that he observed that when a young man is in love, you cannot tell him anything true about his girlfriend. If it's of a negative nature, he won't believe it. Every negative thing you say about her, he'll turn it into a positive. If you say to him, she'll talk your ear off, he'll say, isn't it wonderful that she can talk with anybody anytime about anything? Whatever negative thing you bring up, he'll turn it into a positive. He cannot hear the truth about his girlfriend. Lucretius says. Sartre, about 2,000 years later, says about the same thing. Sartre says it's possible to convince yourself of something you know is not true. Now think about that again. He calls it bad faith. It's one of the most brilliant things I've ever read in my life because it's so true. He says you can persuade yourself of something that you know is not true. Our ability for deception is amazing. And so we must be seeking God at all times for wisdom and for deliverance from it, for clarity in our lives. Johnny Manziel made the news just this week as he has now announced a desire to come back to the NFL. While I wish him well, he certainly is a modern-day classic example of a great potential and a wonderful start, much like King Saul and yet a tragic end, at least up till now. And then today as we read, we're going to see this as well. And so while we're going to look at 2 Samuel 4, we're going to look with eyes of what about us? How does this affect us today? What things are we doing? What kinds of things would we be deceived? And what tragic ends they might come? And what could we do in the opposite direction of sowing Christ and reaping the fruit and gifts of the Holy Spirit? Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word as we turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 4? In the previous chapter, we saw that Joab murdered Abner, Abner being the captain of the host, captain of the armies of the northern Israel. 
after King Saul has died, Abner had served as his captain and commander, but Joab murdered him, and David made it very clear he had nothing to do with it. David, we'll see again in this chapter, is entrusting himself to God and not taking matters into his own hands. Chapter 4. Now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel was disturbed. Saul's son had two men who were commanders of bands. The name of the one was Ba'anah, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Ramon the Be'erothite, of the sons of Benjamin. For Be'eroth is also considered part of Benjamin. And the Be'erothites fled to Gatayim, and have been aliens there until this day. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So the sons of Ramon, the Be'erothite, Rechab, and Ba'anah departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day, while he was taking his midday rest. They came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat, and they struck him in the belly. And Rechab and Ba'anah, his brother, escaped. Now when they came into the house, as he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him. And they took his head and traveled by way of the Arabah all night. And then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord, the king, vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. David said to Rechab and to Ba'anah, his brother, sons of Ramon the Be'erothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed. Shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? Then David commanded the young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hung them up beside the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. Will you pray with me, please? God, we ask that you would give us now ears to hear and to understand this, to receive this. God, our desire is that we would be free thinkers. That as we come into new information and are reminded about things we already know about you, that we would change our thinking and change our actions. That we might bow low and worship you. That we might learn to embrace with great benefit this inviolable principle of sowing and reaping. We ask God that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
please be seated. These men thought they were doing something good, and they committed a heinous first-degree murder. Again, we talked about that even last week, this idea of malice of forethought. They planned it and carried it out. And they did so in the name of the Lord. We can be powerfully derailed and come to a tragic end, as did these two men. And so there is that phrase over and over again in the scriptures, take heed or be on the alert. And we see many examples of that throughout the scriptures and especially in the book of Proverbs, but elsewhere as well. But we need to be turning again and again to Christ, who is our righteousness and the word made flesh. As we think about this reality of the need for understanding who God is and the very nature of God, these men were saying, listen, they were saying that they were serving the same God that David was serving. But listen to what David says about his situation in regard to all of this. He says, he says that he has entrusted himself to God. Verse 9, it's the second part of verse 9. He's addressing these two murderers who have taken matters into their own hands and they think they've done something good. But his response, worshiping the true God that they are worshiping falsely, David says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress. David understands that he does not need to take matters into his own hands. And he's demonstrated that. We saw that several times in 1 Samuel. We think particularly the two times that he had the opportunity to take King Saul's life, but refused to do so, even apologizing for having cut off the corner of King Saul's robe. David is entrusting himself to God. And most people sitting here this morning would say, well, yes, that's the right thing to do until we get in trouble or until we find an opportunity. And then the machinations and the manipulations and the justifications begin to unfold. We need to understand that in the scriptures there is the teaching of a progression from milk to meat in the maturity of the saints. There is a progression from milk to meat in the maturity of the saints. When I was in college, I memorized 1 Peter 2.2. 2. It says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. What a beautiful verse to memorize for a young man. Long for the pure milk of the word. And we ourselves must swim in the Bible and read till we see and be renewed again and again and again because the reality is our thoughts are not God's thoughts. They are not. His thoughts are as high as the heavens above the earth compared to us. But then Paul says something about milk as well in 1 Corinthians 3. He says this, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. As to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? And so we see this reality that he is acknowledging to them that they have some understanding, but they clearly need much more. And then finally, for those who are familiar with these passages, there's another one in Hebrews 5 that we need to mature in our thinking. Hebrews chapter 5, 
Verse 12 says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, now let that sink in. For whatever personal application that might be for everyone here. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. What is he saying? He's saying we cannot play with the devil because the devil is never playing with us. You cannot simply choose that I'm going to go through life and I'm just going to have a simple life. The evil one is a murderer and a liar and the father of lies and he is coming like a roaring lion for you and for your family and for the body of Christ. And we must be ready for him. And there will be opportunities that come upon you suddenly. If you think David is the exception regarding the Bathsheba incident and the murder of holy Uriah, you don't know yourself very well and you don't know the devil very well. These men today, as you read this, because they committed murder, it's easy to think this chapter really has no application to me. I'm not likely to commit murder anytime soon. And yet the ravages of our flesh with hatred and foolishness, we will do all kinds of things and then begin to justify them using and invoking the very name of God. In our text in 2 Samuel 4, it begins, Now when Ishmael, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all Israel was disturbed. Well, he is. He's very concerned. This is Ishmael, you remember, is a, technically the king at this point. Abner has set him up on the throne and made him king. Saul has died, and of course David has already been anointed years earlier by the prophet Samuel to be king. But here's the interim period, and Ishbosheth is technically on the throne, and he hears that his commander-in-chief has died, and so he does lose heart. It is worth noting here, it says, all Israel was disturbed, the end of that verse, and it's just an example that all doesn't always mean every person everywhere without exception. Not every person everywhere without exception was disturbed. It just means all over the nation they heard about it and they were really aware that there was chaos here, potentially, in the land. They didn't know what was going to happen. But we see the reality that it starts on a very negative note and Ishbosheth is mindful of that. He is very mindful of it. In the second verse, Saul's son had two men who were with him. And so it names the two men and it just simply describes them as captains, as army leaders. Being an army leader is a great thing. Being a corporate head is a great thing. But when you take worldly principles and apply them throughout your life, instead of having the leading of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to every area of your life, you can quickly get in trouble. These military men are responding in a way that they think military men ought to respond, rather than in the way that God would have them respond. And that is the beauty of both King David and more so of the Lord Christ. But in every situation, King David and much more so the Lord Christ responds exactly appropriate to the circumstances. But these men, we start out understanding, are military men and they are far too military-minded for every application rather than to stop and think 
what is the glory of God in this circumstance. Then in verse 4, it simply is a parenthetical. It's just setting you up here to be aware that Jonathan does have a son named Mephibosheth. We're going to come back to him later on as David desires to do something to honor Jonathan. Verse 5 picks back up with the two sons. And we see the reality here of the murder. They go in and they murder. We just read it. They murder him in the middle of the day in cold blood. It is Shakespeare who says, Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. And here he is in the middle of the day in his own home, just resting and murdered. Note here how completely wrong they were. They were not operating partly in the right and partly wrong. They were completely in the wrong but believed that what they were doing was right. We can be very deceived. We were doing God's work, is what they say in verse 8. Look at it with me. Then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, they don't call him the king, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. They have become judge and jury and executors. And David is very aware of how wrong this is. We see this idea of being dreadful and the name of God. In the Jewish community, that's considered to be the worst of sins, to do something truly awful, but to then blame it upon God. Bloody Mary did that during her very brief reign as Queen of England, killing more than 300 Protestants, all in the name of God. But the reality is that David entrusts himself to God. Verse 9, the second part of it said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress. But what does he mean by redeemed my life from all distress? Well, as you recall, there are only a couple of Psalms that are in the Bible twice, and Psalm 18 is one of them. Psalm 18 says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. He goes on to say, by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. David has great confidence in his God, great confidence in his God. Verse 46 The same psalm says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who executes vengeance for me. David doesn't have to take matters into his own hands. The God who executes vengeance for me, and subdues people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me above those who rise up against me. David has seen this in the history of God's people. He has seen it in his own life. He knows this to be the nature of who God is. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent men. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord. I will sing praises to your name. He has a motivation for singing the praises of the Almighty because he understands the attentiveness, the personal goodness, and the power of God. And so he can rest in his everlasting arms. And so he does. But these men are operating very foolishly, believing that the end justifies the means. That is a very anti-biblical, ungodly thought. The ends does not justify the means. You do not achieve a righteous result through an unrighteous process. 
And we began to see sowing and reaping. Here they took the life of another man very quickly, and their life ends very, very quickly. And David takes their life publicly and executes them and tells them the sentence before they die. But then notice at the very end of this chapter it says, But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron, honoring the dead. King David is, throughout these initial chapters here, everywhere he goes, chaos is all around him, and he is entrusting himself to God, and he is demonstrating before God and before the people that his hope is in the Lord. And by giving this head at least an honorable burial, he is demonstrating further that he had nothing to do with this, as he had nothing to do with the death of Abner as well. And the people see it. This is what's called adorning the gospel by our lives. The people see that he had nothing to do with it, that he doesn't delight in the death of Ishbosheth, as he did not delight in the death of Abner, nor did he delight in the death of King Saul. And the people see it, and they glorify God. People watch you in difficult circumstances to see how you respond. And when we put our trust in God, when hope and joy is on our lips, and evident in our lives, even though people know difficult circumstances that we're in. They see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Well, the name of the sermon this morning was, Are You Sowing and Reaping Christ? We see in this chapter the sowing and reaping of sin and wickedness and foolishness and to the flesh. But we read in Romans 8 this morning that we are also to be mindful, as Paul tells us, that we're to be sowing to the Spirit and not to the flesh. And so as I think about sowing Christ this morning, I thought of the Gospel of John, particularly the statements of Christ, of, that he declares that he's the bread of life. It's in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, are we sowing that reality into our lives in every circumstance? That Christ is the bread of life. Are we preparing ourselves now for what unforeseen circumstances may unfold today, this week. In John chapter 6, verse 35, we read these words. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And then verse 47, the same chapter, I tell you the truth, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that the one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Christ is encouraging us and instructing us as he is the bread of life that we are to put everything in perspective of eternity. We are capable of great wrong action when we put things right in front of us and our whole world is just today or tomorrow or next week, but when we back up and look at the whole of eternity and see that Christ has died for our sins and that God is faithful even though we are not and that he will cause us to persevere 
It changes everything about how we approach this life. And that includes how we approach the things that we might want to do and we might want to pull into our own way through manipulations and machinations, but instead we entrust ourselves to God. And we recognize that He is the one who is going to do this. Christ says, I am the bread of life, just like the manna. They were sustained by the manna. They would have died otherwise. But He says, no, no, I am that to you. And then He reminds them, of course, that man from the temptation that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The question for us, are we sowing Christ as the word made flesh? Are we sowing Christ as the bread of life into our lives? Are we reading, swimming in the Bible? Are we learning the nature of God and unlearning what we need to unlearn about God? It will produce great fruit and great joy and great peace with God in various circumstances. The second aspect of sowing Christ is from John chapter 8, verse 12. John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. You can take anything that's happening to you and take it to the Lord Christ. Take it to the nature and the perfections of God and let God shine his light upon it that you might see it in the proper perspective. This is what Joseph is doing as he is in prison and excelling all the while. He's in prison being wrongly charged and he's there for 13 years, but he is entrusting himself to his heavenly father. He is putting all of the darkness and the difficulties of his immediate circumstances and he's holding them up to the glorious light of God who is personal and attentive and powerful. And he knows that God can bring him deliverance at any moment. And that if he's staying in prison, it's by the hand of a mercy-loving, attentive God. Listen to that again. If he's staying in difficult circumstances, it's by the hand of an attentive and mercy-loving God. God is the light of the world, and he shines his light upon us, and he sees us, and he knows what's going on. In verse 31 and 32 of the same chapter, he says this, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free of all those wrong understandings that you have. Had Ba'ana and Recha been worshiping God, had they been pleading with God for wisdom and the leading of the Holy Spirit on that day, they would not have taken the life of Ishbosheth. They would have sought out wise counsel in that regard. They wouldn't have sought personal glory and whatever else they might have been seeking in that process. He will set us free from ignorance and pride and self-centeredness and worldly thinking and fatal actions like Ba'ana and Recha. And we need to be delivered from that. The challenge is that you don't, you don't wake up on a particular day this week with God telling you today is going to be a particularly challenging day for your faith in Christ. It just simply happens. It can happen dramatically suddenly, or it can happen little by little. And so we find ourselves in this great need of resting in Christ as the light of the world and holding all of our circumstances up to Christ. How do you hold them up to Christ? Christ is the Word made flesh. You hold them up to the Word of God. You hold them up to the whole counsel of God. You swim in the Bible and learn the nature of God as we read through the Old Testament and the New Testament and see that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we read more and more 
we're reminded more and more often of things we already knew and needed to be reminded of yet again. Christ also tells us that we are to be the light of the world. That, of course, from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, we ourselves are to be the light of the world in how we conduct ourselves. He says in Matthew 5, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it become salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What does he mean? He means under difficult circumstances. Heathens are happy under great circumstances and joyful and kind to others. But Christians, knowing that he that watches over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps, Christians are happy in difficult circumstances. I have a diver's watch, and on that diver's watches, the numbers have fluorescent on them, and the dial is fluorescent, and the arms are fluorescent. And when you go down very dark, there's not as much light as you might think, and it begins to glow very, very bright so that you can see the time on your watch. But that only lasts for a limited amount of time. And then it fades, and you have to put the watch back in the sunlight or under a lamp for it to be charged up again. And then it works again great, and then it fades. The same thing is true with the Word of God in our hearts, not because of the Word of God, but because of the sin and foolishness that still remains in our hearts that fades the glorious truths of the nature of God. And so we have to come again and again and sit at the feet of Jesus in our daily devotions, praying without ceasing, being filled with the Spirit, preaching to ourselves throughout the day. And as we do, the glow of righteousness and the glory of God returns. There is another sowing of Christ in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, we see Christ as the door. In John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, he says, Truly I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and sheep follow him because they know his voice. And then he says in verse 7, I tell you the truth, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. He's saying, I am the one that you can trust. I am the only one that you can trust. We need to learn the biblical Christ and understand who he is. Christ is very big on the reality that he is telling us things. Please hear this. He's telling us things that don't make sense to us. And so he's demonstrating that he is worthy of our trust. Christ is telling us things that don't make sense to us. And so he is demonstrating that he is worthy of our trust. That's how the Gospel of Mark begins. In Mark chapter 2 is the healing of the paralytic. And the paralytic wants to be healed. But Christ understands there's something much more important here, and that's his sin. And that's eternal life, and that's his relationship with God. And so he says to him, your sins are forgiven. 
And there's a gasp in the room and everybody leans back and they can't believe he said that. And Christ knows exactly what they're thinking. Because he just told them something that they have difficulty believing. That this man's sins are forgiven. And so he demonstrates his credibility by saying, get up and walk. And he does. And now because people see him and can trust him for something they've seen, they can now trust him for something they can't see. You can't see the wisdom of turn the other cheek. You can't see the wisdom of entrust yourself to God and wait upon the Lord. Yes, wait upon the Lord. You can't see the wisdom of vengeance is mine, I will repay. But God says, trust me. I'm worthy of your trust. And your door to greener pastures and happiness is through me. Recently, someone sent me a video of Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager is worth listening to in a secular sense. But he was dreadfully wrong about this. The person that sent it to me was really excited about it. Like, oh, look at this great teaching. It was Dennis Prager actually teaching on the third commandment in the most blasphemous way possible. And the person that sent it to me was a Christian. They said, what do you think about this? And I took them to the Sermon on the Mount. And the very essence of the Sermon on the Mount is that the ways of God are broader, higher, deeper, richer than you ever thought. The ways of God and the commands of God are broader, higher, deeper, richer than you ever thought. And we must plead with God to understand these things and then for God himself to do these things in us as we earnestly desire to make our way to greener pastures. We need the supernatural aid of our good God and we need to be sowing these truths in our lives that Christ is the only door to greener pastures and they only come through obedience and through the Holy Spirit. There is another sowing of Christ and that is as the good shepherd in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, he says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We see this reality that he is the good shepherd. What do we do as a result of that? We rejoice in it and we are transparent about our need of a shepherd. We are not like dogs that God can whistle for and we just come running, wagging our tails and ready to go. We need a shepherd. We desperately need a shepherd. Turn your Bibles once again. Hold your finger there and turn your Bible to everyone. If you've got a Bible, turn it to Psalm 119. We desperately need a shepherd. And he is the great shepherd. And we need to sow that truth in our hearts and come to him again and again and again as the great shepherd. Psalm 119, just one verse. The last verse, 176. The last verse, King David understands that he needs a shepherd. King David is a shepherd, a real shepherd over real sheep, and he sees his own real heart, and he cries out as a summation, as an exclamation point on this glorious psalm. Verse 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. What an awesome exclamation point to that glorious psalm. 
as David himself is sowing, Christ as his shepherd, come looking for me, come looking for me. John Piper says the God of the Bible takes you by force. Hallelujah. The God of the Bible takes you by force, and King David had enough understanding of who God was as the good shepherd to say, come, come look for me. Come take me by force. What a great prayer for all saints every day. Come take me by force. There is another way. So in Christ, it's in John 11. In John 11, verse 25, Jesus says, after Martha and Mary are disappointed that he was not there in order to heal Lazarus, Verse 25, Jesus says to them, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? If you don't know that verse, it would be worth memorizing. It changes everything. When you come to understand that in Christ you have eternal life, and eternal joy in the favorable presence of God, it gives you an unbelievable backdrop against which to place every challenge of your life. Our sure and certain victory over death changes everything. Psalm 30 says, Weeping may spend the night, but joy comes in the morning. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to Psalm 30 knowing that verse is in there and prayed that psalm. But it's the John 11 passage that that's referring to. That eternal life, Christ is the resurrection and the life. It is that there is eternal life, the resurrection is eternal life, and that he is the life. That my purpose on this earth is to glorify him. And that if I'm not glorifying him, I'm not going to find a life in this world. We need to come to that reality. We need to come to that reality. One more way of sowing Christ is in John 14, John 14, 6, a very familiar passage to most, and that is, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I am the way and the truth and the life. We need to come to understand that Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and that there is no other, that Christ is all about his glory as the only means to the Father. And he's all about his being as the source of truth and the very essence of truth and of life itself, including the abundant or good life. A couple of weeks ago in the bulletin, we had that quote from Paul Tripp saying that the Bible is the greatest book or manual in the universe on reality. The Bible is the greatest manual in the universe, he says, on reality of truth. And we need to come to understand that. Look in your bulletin, on the front of your bulletin, is a quote there from Fulton Sheen under Tolerance and Intolerance. We need to understand truth and almost truth. And that's a great concern today. Tolerance and intolerance on the front of your bulletin. There is no other subject on which the average mind is so much confused as the subject of tolerance and intolerance. Tolerance applies only to persons, never to principles. Intolerance applies only to principles but never to persons. That's worth unpacking this afternoon and this week in your prayers and in your thoughts and as you examine your life 
and as you pray for wisdom about how to pilot through the waters that you find yourself in at this time. There is reality that Christ would have as the way and the truth and the life he would have himself to be our Godward orientation. He is saying there, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's saying the Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The last way that we can sow Christ that I mentioned this morning is from John 15. John 15, that great passage about Christ as the vine and we as the branches. John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. First and foremost, embrace that reality that God prunes good branches. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. That we would preach to ourselves and sow Christ as the vine in our hearts again and again, sowing the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, in our hearts, that through God, as King David says in Psalm 18, through God we shall do great acts. Look again on the front of your bulletin. Francis Chan here writing says, a comment on Romans 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. This passage makes me think of a Gatorade commercial. The commercial asks, is it in you? As it shows athletes performing incredible feats while Gatorade comes sweating out of their pores. I love the visual illustration of something fueling us so powerfully from the inside that its presence is tangible and indisputable. Of course, Gatorade isn't really that powerful. But the visual reminds me of the biblical description of the Holy Spirit. God promises that an internal change, a new creation, will take place within those who believe. And that inward change will produce external actions. The Spirit fuels us so powerfully from the inside that His active presence is tangible and indisputable. If the actions aren't pouring out of your life, you have to ask yourself, is he in you? And so Christ here is demonstrated by the Spirit and the vine, and the, that he's the vine. And Francis Chan is making reference to the visible and the invisible church. As he asked that question, we are to look to see the Holy Spirit and cry out for the work of the Holy Spirit but look to see the external actions that come as a result of it. Our goal in this process is that we might come to delight in Christ, sowing Christ in our hearts and reaping the glory of God in every circumstance, placing everything in the frame of God's glory and coming to understand His glory in all things is the purpose of all things. Hear that again. God's glory in all things is the purpose of all things. Whatever's going on in your life today, 
whatever's going on in your life this week or next week or next month, purpose of all things is the glory of God in all things. James Mako in your bulletin understood that. And he spent some time. I'm not going to read this whole thing to you. I put it in your bulletin that you might spend some time with it this week. James Mako was one of those people like Jonathan Edwards, like all of us want to be and should be, that he preached to himself. He was a preacher, but he also preached to himself. We call that meditation. He preached to himself. And like John Piper, sometimes he would just stop and think and on a particular phrase and sort of unpack that a little bit. As many of us have read that beautiful essay by John Piper on rain. But here he thinks for a few minutes about the fullness of Christ. And he's able to simply ask himself, what condition do I find myself in? And to readily see that Christ is the answer and the glory of that condition. What condition do I find myself in? Christ is the answer and the glory of that condition. All fullness is in Christ to answer all the needs of his people. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, that out of his fullness I may receive all spiritual blessings. Have I destroyed myself by sin? Many are saying it's too late for Johnny Manziel to get back in the NFL. Have I destroyed myself by sin? I have deliverance from him who is mighty to save from sin and wrath. Is my life fleeting and passing away like a shadow? Jesus is the ancient of days and endures forevermore. Are my days short-lived and full of trouble? Jesus is my life and the joy of my heart. Am I exposed to contempt? Jesus shall be my crown of glory and a diadem of beauty. Am I traveling through the wilderness? Jesus is my staff, and on him I lean all the way. Am I on my last journey to my long home? Jesus is my leader and my rewarder. Am I a sheep? Jesus is my pasture and my green pasture too. Am I hungry and thirsty? Jesus is my heavenly manna and gives me to drink of the water of life. What you see as you continue through this is someone who understands the God-centeredness of God and is delighting to join God in God's most right God-centeredness. We will not find joy and happiness and gladness and fulfillment in this life until we come to understand that. And then understanding that, we must recognize that an enemy lurks within and without. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And the old man, still wrestling from within. And so we must be sowing Christ day after day and his perfections. Sowing Christ as the great shepherd. Sowing Christ as the vine. Sowing Christ as the door. So in Christ is the way and the truth and the life. Will you join me in prayer, please? God, we do praise you and thank you for the reorientation that is most needful and necessary in our lives. As we began to see our fingers gripping around things that we foolishly call mine. God, those that are in Christ see so easily themselves in the self-centeredness 
and the justification and foolishness of Ba'ana and Rechab. We see there, but for the grace of God go I. We do not stand before you this day with no ability to relate to King David in the Bathsheba incident or the murder of Holy Uriah. We recognize that if we could lose our salvation, we would have already lost it. So we come again, Lord Christ, to gaze upon you in all of your beauty and strength and glory and power and meekness. You are indeed that being than which nothing greater can be conceived. And we praise your holy name. Lord God, we say with King David, we have gone astray. Seek your servant. Grant, God, that we would be renewed in our first love of you as our creator, as our sustainer, as our redeemer, as the author and finisher of our faith. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would live big in us in such a way that all see it. We pray this, God, in Christ's name. Amen. I commend this bulletin to you this afternoon and this week as you might consider reflecting upon it in your personal devotions, including a rereading of the Romans 8 passage, together with a rereading of that very short 2 Samuel chapter 4. Will you stand now to receive the blessing of God for the people of God? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen. You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit RiverCityReform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reform Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. 
God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me, worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree. And we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see. Come and see.